Welcome to the podcast series from the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminars at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. Good afternoon and welcome to Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminar. My name is Maura Fulton. I'm a second year master's student in the Department of Health Policy and Management and an executive member of the Women in Leadership student group here at HSPH. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Paula Johnson who will be speaking to us about leadership and action in women's health. Dr. Johnson is an internationally recognized women's health specialist and a pioneer in the treatment and prevention of cardiovascular disease. She is the executive director of the Connors Center for Women's Health and Gender Biology and chief of the Division of Women's Health at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where she is responsible for developing an interdisciplinary research, education, and clinical program in women's health. She is the founder of the Center for Cardiovascular Disease in Women, where her work has centered on developing new strategies for the prevention of heart disease in women and to spearhead research that advances understanding of the impact of gender on heart disease. She is recognized as a national expert in the area of quality of cardiology care for women and minorities. Dr. Johnson serves as chair of the board of the Boston Public Health Commission and is a member of the National Institutes of Health Advisory Committee on Research on Women's Health. She is a graduate of Harvard University and Radcliffe College and earned her medical degree at Harvard Medical School as well as an MPH here at HSPH. Dr. Johnson is the recipient of several awards recognizing her contributions in women's and minority health including the Abigail Adams Award from the Massachusetts Women Political Caucus, which recognizes women leaders who have demonstrated through their work an outstanding commitment to the realization of equal political, economic, and social rights for women. Dr. Johnson serves as a role model for men and women leaders alike, and it is an honor to have her here with us this afternoon. I will now turn the seminar over to our moderator for today, Dr. Jennifer Leaning. Thanks. Thank you very much uh, for being here, and that introduction was great. Thank you. Um, Paula, you and I go way back as we were talking about this. Uh, we met in the uh, emergency department at Brigham and Women's Hospital. It was just starting to be an emergency department, mm -hmm. and you were just starting your career. You, you were there a resident. It was right. during your residency, wasn't it? Right. Um, and we won't say how many years ago that way. <laughs> uh, but it, um, it is Some fascinating. Some of these guys might not have been born. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, was, yeah, it was fascinating um, to think about the, the paths that you've taken. Um, and there are several paths you're going to talk about mm -hmm. today. The paths you've taken and the challenges you've faced. Um, and over that pathway, how you've developed your notions of leadership and, and women's leadership in particular. And, I'm hoping that you will begin by giving us a, an overview of, of that path and how, how things develop for you in your mind and then in the community that you have helped shape both here in the hospital community and public health community, but really nationwide and internationally. Well, Jennifer, thank you. And more, I want to say thank you for that really wonderful and very generous uh, introduction. And Jennifer, it's so special to be here uh, with you. Um, We've come a long way over those years. Both of us, I think, have evolved in, in very different ways that we right. might not have known at that time almost 30 years ago. Well, you were supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> 
but um, but I think it's 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 first of all it's wonderful to be here and to really think about leadership and leadership uh, have an opportunity to reflect on my own work because I think you know sometimes you just do it and you don't have an opportunity to think about it and I think uh, doing this. Um, this session today has given me an opportunity to reflect a little bit, which is always extremely helpful. Uh, and, and as I think about leadership and my own leadership in, in women's health, and particularly at the Connors Center, um, you know, we, we tend to think about leadership in this very hierarchical way. You're the head of something, whether it be the hospital, a school, um, an organization, a department, um, and it kind of all flows from there. Um, I think my leadership is, has really worked in somewhat different ways, which is uh, I've really had to lead and to manage um, a matrix, a matrixed organization. Uh, and if you think about women's health and many of the problems you will be facing or are facing that you're going to address, figuring out how various disciplines work together, how do you work across disciplines um, is going to be very important. So, And I think that's been a cornerstone of the work that uh, that I've had to do. Another important dimension has really been influencing and really taking that deep understanding, that deep base of knowledge that you develop through your research, your clinical skills, and whatever you do, but taking that and really using it for change. And probably the, the greatest example in my own work and at the Connor Center is taking that deep expertise in research and clinical care and really bringing it to the policy world. Um, how do we bring that knowledge and frame, help to frame issues through an informed women's health lens? And then the third is really around collaboration and more collective leadership. Um, you're not always out in front as a leader, but you are partnering. You're really thinking about what is it that you bring that changes the frame, brings a unique perspective that's important in advancing the agenda. And I think there probably our work in global health, and we can talk a little bit about these areas later, but I think it's really those three areas of, of leadership that I think have really defined um, my own leadership, particularly over the past uh, 10 years. And I would venture to say, you know, as you go out in the world, these are dimensions that will be uh, very, uh, very important uh, to you. So just to, I just want to get to the Connor Center because we're going to talk a little bit about my own journey. Um, the Connor Center is uh, an interdisciplinary center. It's hospital-wide, and we really focus on building the scientific base. So how do we better understand and, and really, through discovery, discover how men and women are different in every aspect of health and disease. Uh, we do everything from more basic science to um, epidemiology to clinical epi and then health services research. How do we take that, that science um, and translate it into clinical care, to models of care that are uh, important for women, that are based in science, but also where we focus on the workforce. How do women in the workforce need to work differently as they address particularly women's health? Um, we are really focused on taking that deep knowledge, as I just said, and translating it and bringing it to policymakers. 
how do we train that next generation of both scientists and clinicians to think much more in interdisciplinarily? And then how do we bring that framework of women's health, particularly as an academic medical center, to the global health arena? So that's really what the Connors Center does. We also have a very strong academic rooting with a division where I can recruit faculty and promote them. You know, that's, that's the credibility, that's the, uh, that's kind of the foundation of academic medicine, so we have that uh, as well. The center is 10 years old this year, which is also an exciting time. Took me 20 years to get there, though. You figure if we met 30 years ago. And um, <laughs> I know I keep saying that. <laughs> it was fun well, to have yeah. friendship school for 30 years. Yeah. You, that's something for you to look forward to. <laughs> but you know, if you look back 10 years, just turn the clock back, uh, the Brigham decided that it was going to really launch into women's health beyond its traditional strengths in obstetrics and gynecology, and at that time, primary care. Um, they didn't exactly know what that meant, uh, and uh, there was one uh, venture into it that kept women's health siloed, and that didn't work. So they decided they were going to take another leap, and they were going to really focus on this hospital-wide initiative, not exactly knowing what it was. But I would just want you to think about that time a little over 10 years ago. It was 10 years, um, so that was in 2003, 10 years from the 1993 NIH Revitalization Act. And that was the law that actually mandated the inclusion of women and minorities in NIH trials. Before that, you know, women and minorities were not included in trials in any great number. So it had been 10 years since that time. And it had been about a year since the Institute of Medicine had published their study mm -hmm. that sex matters. Now, we might all know that. And they coined the term, every cell has a sex. Um, which was really phenomenal. You know, every cell has a sex, meaning that there are fundamental sex differences in every aspect of health and disease, and we are only at the very beginning of that discovery. So this was the opportunity, and at the same time, the whole discipline of health disparities, understanding health disparities, where the Harvard School of Public Health is really a leader, was also kind of really getting a major foothold. So this was an exciting time to think about women's health, the opportunity in science, the opportunity of translating that science, and also incorporating this whole area of health disparities. And you know, I thought, what could not be a better opportunity uh, for a person like myself, who was somewhat non-traditional? Talk a little bit about that, but. You know, where my passion for women's health had been longstanding, uh, it was back in college, and I won't tell you when that was exactly, but back in college when during my freshman year I took a course with Ruth Hubbard. Does anyone know who Ruth Hubbard is in this room? Nancy knows. Ruth Hubbard was the first tenured biology professor at Harvard, and um, she taught a course on gender and health. And it really focused on how being female and sexism that was experienced um, in science really influenced the way science was carried out and also the way healthcare was delivered. And this was an eye-opener to me. And we looked at it both domestically but also globally. I mean, can you imagine, this was the late 70s. Um, so I think from then I was absolutely 
this was a path that I knew I'd follow at some point. And then about a year and a half later, I went and worked for a small health policy organization called Health Pack. And it was in New York, in, in Union uh, Square, where I can almost remember this little office there. And we were looking at how do you do research, looking at differences in healthcare delivery based on race and socioeconomic status, and how do you use that knowledge to impact policy. So it was exciting, but what was really interesting and I think served as an important model to me was the person I worked with, his name was Hal Strelnick and we're friends to this day. He was not only working at this health policy organization, but he was a well-respected academic at Montefiore Hospital and was head of the preventive medicine training program. And here was the first time that I experienced somebody who had a foot in these two worlds. He was bringing his credibility as an academic to not only the study of disparities, but how do you translate that information actually into real policy. So I think those experiences really informed my, my interest and, and path, and they were, they were really exciting. And um, when the opportunity to lead the Connor Center came up, um, it was those interests married with I think, what were my skills that I had developed at that time that I think really made it a perfect fit. Um, and I'll say just a couple of words about the development of those leadership skills because as you guys sit in the audience, you're thinking about, okay, where am I today and where will I be in 10 or 20 years? And some of it is planned and some of it is totally serendipitous. And for me, I'm going to share two experiences, one of which was serendipitous and one which was really a strategic move. Um, when I was about 29, so probably the same age as some of you in the room, I was asked to join the board of Planned Parenthood here in Massachusetts. And I was asked because people knew that I had a deep interest in women's health. They knew my research. I'm a clinical epidemiologist, so I study patterns of care. They knew my research. Um, and they thought that I would bring something um, important to their board. I joined the board. And lo and behold, six years later, I became the chair. And so it was a phenomenal journey being part of that organization. But as I launched into becoming the chair, uh, you know, I immediately, through that organization, had credibility in the advocacy world, which would become very important later on. Um, I also learned how to do certain things, like lead a group of people who were far more senior than myself. Um, I learned how to raise money. I knew, I learned how to make a case for raising money. Um, and I learned how to really work in very different types of teams. So, you know, that's an experience outside of the academy that I never would have expected to inform where I am today, but without a doubt gave me some of the skills that as I was looking at this job 10 years ago that I absolutely needed. You know, and then the second one was I had become the uh, head of quality. Quality was a new area, um, quality of health in major teaching hospitals. Now you might wonder, how do we go from women's health to quality? 
And um, I still continued my work in women's health. I was leading cardiovascular disease in women, but I knew for me to get to the next step in an academic medical center in thinking about these problems across institutions in a big way, I really needed some experience managing a larger organization, managing a budget, and also working with leadership. And this was a matrixed organization that served a very important role that allowed me to bring in my interest in women's health, focus in women's health and minority health, to become part of the core kind of strategies of looking at quality in a major institution. And I learned how to work with the leadership. I learned how to manage a budget. So when it came time for the Connor Center, you know, I really, um, as I look back, it was a, there were many experiences over time, in addition to the academic one, that, that really informed um, where I was going to, my ability to, to take that on and to shape something that needed, that needed shape. Could you <clears throat> give a few examples of sort of leadership pivots or challenges, either ones that you personally faced, uh, like real examples, um, you can leave the names out, or, or in terms of um, how you've been mentoring and developing young leaders, leadership challenges that they have faced. Okay, so perfectly frank. Yeah. Um, when you're leading uh, in a matrix, leading a matrix within a traditionally hierarchical organization, and that's what I do, that presents any number of challenges. Because just because I'm passionate and I've been given a mandate doesn't mean that every last leader in the institution has the same passion or commitment And recall, we're that talking I about do. chairs of departments of medicine, right. chairs of neurosurgery, chairs of vascular surgery, okay, so we're deep bastions of established American medicine. Right. <laughs> That's a good, deep bastions. Uh, and, um, and also remember, here I am, really working very hard to be inclusive of the traditional definition of women's health, which is obstetrics and gynecology. It's all about reproductive health. But I'm now saying, you know, we are saying we are going to really expand the definition. That could be a little, a, a little sensitive to people who do much more traditional women's health. So, you know, one of the things I learned very, on, very early on was that you really had to meet leaders where they were. You had to meet heads of departments where they were, um, to work with other department chairs, to work with other leaders, both internally and externally. They didn't necessarily have to bring the same passion that you did, but you could meet them for wherever the intersection could be. And it might be about the business case. Um, it might be that, gee, you know, I really think that um, focusing on women's health is going to be very important to my bottom line because it's going to bring in more women patients. It might not be where I start, but it's a start. Um, it might be that there are certain faculty who have particular interests and I want those interests fostered. Can you work with me to do that? A very important area and one that we've been very successful uh, across the institution in terms of building faculty. An interesting point here is that, <clears throat> so here she's talking about leadership and trying to get buy-in, and one of the tactics is to find common ground. It might be slim, but another of the tactics is to ask those other people for help. 
And that is always, <clears throat> that's often not what you anticipate or would think would be a leadership strategy for buy-in. But actually, I think that's worked with you in several occasions, just no, as you said. I, absolutely. So, you know, as I think about the challenges, um, those have been places where I've learned a lot. And um, then figuring out how to bring leaders along to a point of much more advanced thinking uh, around women's health. You know, another leadership challenge is, I've talked a little bit about the, the policy agenda. That is not a traditional agenda for an academic medical center. I think here at the School of Public Health, you are used to thinking about this, but taking your expertise, your work, and really thinking very actively, so it's a pretty activist role, thinking very actively about how that work may influence the health of women locally as well as nationally um, is not the usual business of, um, of an academic medical center. And I do think that was a, re was a risk. It's been a challenge. Uh, it's still a journey, but one that has, I think, been tremendously beneficial um, in terms of the work we've been able to accomplish, but also in helping faculty and coaching faculty to think about the actual implications and translation uh, of their work. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you run, <clears throat> there, there are two things I really hope you can touch on. Um, one is you run, you design, set up, raise the money for, and for years now it's been thriving, the Global Women's Health Fellowship at, at the Brigham. Um, we know, I know some of the people who've gone through that program. If you could talk about some of them and some of the things that excite you about how they've grown in that, in that fellowship. And then the other is the uh, leadership of the Boston Public Health Commission, which is uh, extraordinary. And that commission has made some major changes in public health under uh, your leadership. Um, so just to thank you, uh, Jennifer, for, for bringing those two up. The, the Global Women's Health Fellowship uh, program has been a very special part of the Connor Center. And, and if you remember, I kind of talked about those three dimensions of leadership. I think this really um, sits squarely in that collaboration uh, area where we saw a very significant need for really reframing um, our, uh, some of the work we, we were doing globally. Um, when I say we, I'm saying the royal we. Um, at the Brigham, at Harvard, at the School of Public Health. How do we take that amazing work but reframe some of the problems through a women's health lens? Um, so yes, there's, there's the work that is traditionally women's health focused like maternal mortality um, and issues around sexual violence, but there's also cardiovascular disease an emerging health problem that through a gendered lens, there's the biology and the social environmental issues. Pulmonary disease, think about the social environmental issues about cooking stoves. This is fundamentally a women's health issue. Um, HIV, I think everyone's familiar obviously with the gendered aspects of HIV, but some of the work in, in HIV and, and keeping the gendered lens um, very clear and upfront. And how do you train young investigators who have passions for these areas to do the research through that gendered lens. 
And so we have, uh, we started the fellowship now, it's six years ago. Um, we, uh, it is totally philanthropically uh, supported. Uh, we train um, about two uh, fellows uh, each year. We'd hope to train more because there's an absolute growing demand to do research, to be investigators looking at health issues globally through that, through that lens. So an example is cardiovascular disease. One of our senior fellows this year is finishing up and her area is cardiovascular disease in women in India. And really understanding what the risks are, what the environmental factors around the advancement and the increased risk of disease and how we might uh, learn more in order to decrease risk. Uh, HIV in Botswana is where we, we partner actually with the School of Public Health to really look at some of the gendered issues around HIV transmission um, and uh, treatment and also the role of women as caregivers, right, which we tend to not include frequently in how we view and think about health issues globally. So that caregiving role, which is a gendered role. So those are just two, you know, two examples of, uh, of fellows. But, um, it's an exciting, uh, it's really an exciting uh, journey. Um, <clears throat> I was at one of the research seminars that you helped convene with a number of the fellows coming, and uh, the, the extent to which they had received training in public health, epidemiology, as well as clinical medicine of whatever their field was, it was really quite remarkable. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a cadre of people that um, are going to make cadre that is going to make a very big difference over the years as they're moving well, forward. Well, you know, the, the point being, and I think you, that that's exactly the point, which is that the field of women's health, the field is a young field, right? So unlike many fields that have been around for, for eons, this is a relatively young field. And we are providing the building blocks of the faculty and others who are now becoming junior faculty who are now mentoring the next generation. So it's important not only in terms of the work that they're doing, but it's really building that base for the building of the field. So um, the Public Health Commission, then we're yes. going to turn it over for questions, okay? Uh, it, I mean, you know the one thing I know that you've done, which is about smoking, but would you talk about that and say what kind of fight that was? I mean, it really puts us in the in a leadership position around the nation, doesn't it? Yeah, um, you know that the role that I've I've played first on the board and then as its chair, uh, the Boston Public Health Commission is our public health department in Boston, and I think it speaks to another one of our tenants at the Connor Center, and I think why I was tapped to join that board, which is the very important focus on bridging healthcare delivery and public health. And for many of you sitting in this room, that may be a no-brainer, but I will tell you that I think as you move out into the world beyond this phenomenal place, um, it's not a no-brainer. You move back to either your world in public health or you move back to your world in healthcare delivery, and usually there is very little intersection. And um, really thinking about how those worlds should intersect to advance health, obviously for me it's the health of women, um, but to advance health writ large is one of the major challenges, I think, in our, in our country today. So 
it was to me a tremendous opportunity to join the board because it was bringing a very strong voice that was rooted in healthcare delivery, but also had a foot in the public health world. And the work that we've been able to do there under the leadership of, of Barbara Ferrer, Dr. Barbara Ferrer, who's a phenomenal leader, uh, I think has been extraordinary. The work in smoking and, and thinking about our, our environmental um, advancements, we've done a lot of regulations of banning smoking that have absolutely affected um, rates of cardiovascular disease, uh, first in our city and the state has, has followed along. But we've also focused on issues around public health and health care delivery. What should primary care look like in the future? How do we root primary care much more squarely in the public health world where patients are not looked at as being owned by an institution or a practice, but in fact are part of a community? And part of a community that has both ills as well as resources. Um, so really, Helping to build those bridges, I think, has been a phenomenal experience and I think has really put our public health department um, in the forefront in, in many areas. Well, that's great, Paula. Um, as we know, Boston is a very diverse city, but there are many pockets and barriers to having people come together around common issues. And the Public Health Commission is one that has seen it as a whole. Uh, and recognizing the diversity has meant, has, has moved in ways that will diminish the diversity around goods delivered and healthcare, um, but paying attention to the diversity that has strengths. It's a, it's a, it's a nuanced way of, of handling leadership uh, for a very, very large and, and closely watched um, community such as the city of Boston. So I uh, would very much like to see if some of you could ask questions, and uh, we'll um, just go for as long as um, you have questions. I have a couple of follow-up things that I could ask Paula, but I, my hunch is that some of you may have some things you'd like to ask her about. Yes, please, right in front, here, you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Rachel Liao, and I'm a doctoral student here in the Biological Sciences and Public Health program at the school. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for being with us. And my question, I think, is one that, um, that probably many of us in the room who are women can relate to, uh, particularly those in academic research and in medicine, both of which uh, you represent. And that's uh, the question that's, that's discussed frequently about work-life balance. And I I've sort of was thinking as I was sitting listening to you that you're in a rather privileged position to answer a question about work-life balance, both because you are a successful woman in leadership and in medicine and in academic research, but also because you study these sorts of gendered issues. And this seems like it's, it's quite a gendered issue to, to pursue a career in medicine or in research and to also uh, make time for a family or whatever other outside of work pursuits that one might pursue. So I was wondering if you could speak to that question from both those perspectives. Uh, no, thank you. I think it's it's a great it's a great question. We didn't talk about my my personal life. I am married uh, to a physician who's a clinical rheumatologist, and I do have two children, uh, ages 11, so a sixth grader, and a senior uh, in high school. Um, so I'm going to say that I tend to call it work-life integration because I don't think there's ever a balance. 
And it, to me, it's about integrating the two. And when I say life, it's not only, you know, for life for all of us in this room is different. And it's different at different points in your life. So it might be children at one point, but it might be elders. It might be um, parents or friends or partners. There, there are different things um, or desires to advance ourselves in ways that are not within your traditional realm of work. Um, and how do you begin to integrate those? Um, into the, the kind of the studying piece, you're right. We actually do use the Connor Center as a laboratory in a way to study different ways of um, configuring work so that women in particular uh, might have opportunities that they would not necessarily have had. So I'll give you a concrete example. We run a 13 specialty, uh, started a 13 specialty, very different type of, of practice. Um, it's a, a, what we call a, a learning laboratory, not because we're experimenting on patients, but because we're experimenting with different models of work, different models of care delivery, and really trying to develop a sense that this is this is a real area of study and focus that needs to inform how we move forward in those areas. So we've experimented with different models. What is the infrastructure needed? How do we do team-based care, but team-based care that really looks at flexible work schedules, um, keeping, for example, patients at the center? Uh, we've published on this topic, um, and it has been used um, to, uh, as a model for others. So I think there is a real ability to use our academic engines to actually study and think about these, these topics. Uh, from a more personal perspective, um, you know, for me, it's really been about figuring out where my priorities are and figuring out how you integrate those priorities into day-to-day -day life. And there is no right answer for anybody. Um, what I would say, though, is having leadership, and I do view myself as, as being particularly aware of this, having leadership that values that integration, that addresses it, and makes it part of the discussion, makes it part of the mentoring, makes it part of what your advancement must include, to me is critically important. Um, so that's a very important role that I play in my own leadership um, as heading uh, a, a, a center and a division, but it's also one that I think I play with other leaders in influencing other leaders around advancing, uh, advancing those areas. So I, I, I can't give you a, a golden um, nugget um, other than uh, you have to be true to what your interests are, but also understand the demands of your field. Um, and what you do today may not actually be the same as what you do tomorrow. Uh, and to be open to that fluidity. Great. Thank you. There were several other hands. Yes, please, in the back. Hello, Dr. Bowman. 
Thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Denise Safwoodjay. I'm an MPH student here in Health Policy and Management, and I'm also a medical student at the University of Michigan here Great. for the year. So my question was, um, you talked about um, kind of strategy in terms of um, when you were 29, choosing to join the Planned Parenthood board and some other decisions you made that kind of helped you to hone in on different um, leadership and management skills. I was just curious if you can discuss some challenges you faced in being a clinician moving from resident to other senior positions within medicine and getting people interested about women's health and kind of how you strategize when to push the envelope more with research for women's health, other community leadership positions, and how you kind of navigated those different roles to get where you yeah. are today. Good, you, really good question. Your question, um, just to try to pinpoint it a bit, is it uh, how much attention over time do you give to being a really fabulous clinician, like full time, and then when do you move into these other realms, and mm -hmm. then at a certain point, what happens to your clinical practice, and is that part of what right. you're talking about? Because mm -hmm. I would think as a medical student, that's front and center for you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Thank you. Uh, okay, so that, that's, that's uh, it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, and I would say that for me, uh, as I thought about my own career, there was one thing that was very clear, um, even though I knew that my path would probably be a little bit different, was that if I was going to stay in the academy, that I really needed the credentials that, the, um, that an academic setting requires, which meant that I needed to figure out which discipline of study was going to marry my interests and passions with academic advancement. And so really um, getting a degree in public health, uh, working, my first research mentor was somebody named Lee Goldman. He's now the dean at Columbia Medical School. Um, working with him around these issues of healthcare delivery, understanding patterns of delivery, but getting that deep rooting in the academy and in a research focus that could give me the credentials to move forward, I think was, was very important. And then really moving forward, thinking about what credentials did I need internally? And I talked a little bit about those. But then in the field of women's health, there's also a need to have some external focus as well. And so when I was asked to join the board of Planned Parenthood, I had been known in that world. And it's because I do believe that there is both an internal aspect to the science and the work, but it's also an external, there's external pressures. The field is inherently political. Um, I think to advance the field, you have to have a foot in both worlds. Uh, and for me, it was also important to keep, to keep it real. And to keep it real, you really have to not only stay within your field, but also keep getting some nurturing and information and partnership from those outside. So I can't say that, that there were any calculated decisions, only a good sense of knowing directionally where I was going, what I needed to build in terms of my own um, body of knowledge, what were some of, the, some of the skills I really needed to know, and how I needed to work both internally and externally to advance. There's always an emphasis on credentials if you're a woman and you want to have a leadership role. That's just a given. I mean, as there are many new pathways and new ways of earning a living and having influence in this world now. Social media, web-based things, 
new businesses, et cetera. So what I just said um, probably doesn't apply to that. There are different kinds of credentials you have to earn for that. But um, in, in medicine and public health, uh, in major organizations, um, to be a leader, there are these issues of where have you been, where have you trained, what are your degrees, what's your experience, what's your reputation, very fundamentally. And um, I think Paula Johnson has both instinctively and then with some strategy paid attention to those issues. And there, you know, I'll tell you, Jennifer, there have been some, there have been some tough times and some risk, you know, once again, risk taken, which, you know, when I was launching into my career, so I was finishing my chief residency and, and I was really launching into my training uh, as a clinical epidemiologist and I was going to study the impact of sex and race on the delivery of, of cardiology care. At that time, um, my very esteemed um, chief of medicine thought that I was making a mistake and told me so. And he thought not that the field wasn't important because it was, was an emerging field, so it wasn't the, the standard, it was emerging, but he thought that for a woman, and particularly a woman of color, going into this field, that it could be viewed as more self-serving. Now you can imagine me sitting in his office and him sharing that with me. And I felt at that moment that, you know, I could take one of two paths. Um, I could take his advice, figure out where I was going to turn next, or continue to be true to what my passions were and, and get the greatest academic kind of grounding in that possible. I did the latter. And I think what to me was most, um, it was really uh, just a, a very poignant moment when probably about five years ago, this very powerful man in medicine, we were, we were talking and he said, you know, I do remember what I said to you um, all those years ago. And he said, and I was wrong. And, you know, I just think it was this moment of um, just mutual admiration because it was a difficult moment. But, you know, what amazing insight mm -hmm. for him to come back, remember, acknowledge it, but also, you know, for, for me to have gone on that path. So these are the things that you will, um, that you will experience. Another question. Yes, please. And then we'll go back to you, yeah, in front here. Right. Yeah. Hi there. Hi. <laughs> it's on. I'm Sarah Jenks, a second year master's student in global health and population. Great. And I, something that I'm sure a lot of us at Harvard have grappled with is that with high achievement comes high expectation. Mm -hmm. And I uh, was wondering what kind of what you deemed maybe personal failures in your past, how did you overcome them and look forward towards making it up the ladder? Um, if you have any personal suggestions. Oh, failure. failure is very Never. important. Failure is very important in resilience, really failure, is. Failure is, uh, failure is very important and also dealing with kind of life's challenges is also very important because they, they, you know, if you haven't experienced them yet, they will come. I'm going to share with you two quick stories. Uh, the first goes back to, the, this might be a little early, but I'm going to share it because I think it's important. Um, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Any Brooklyn folks? I'm from Brooklyn. And went to public school in Brooklyn. 
Um, and my dream, my vision of myself was to go to the premier public high school, special school in Brooklyn, which to me at that time was Bronx High School of Science. And I lived to go to Bronx High School of Science. I studied for the, it was an exam school. I studied for that exam and, you know, and I actually made it in. And to me, this was at that point in my life, at, at all of what age 14, or whatever I was, um, a crowning achievement. I got there and realized after a week, I could not do this. Um, the travel was enormous. I felt like a fish out of water. It was not the right environment for me. And um, I came back home and actually shared with you know, my parents that I really needed to come back to my local high school. Um, that's a story about a personal view of failure, but staying true to what your experience is and how it speaks to you and moving forward. And I think that experience in and of itself taught me that following, you know, getting the information but also following my gut was going to be a really important way uh, to move forward and continuing on the path. Um, the second one is um, when the Brigham first decided to uh, undertake this women's health focus, remember I said the first one was, was a failure, well I applied for that first job which was actually four years before the Connor Center was born. And I didn't get it. I presented what I thought was a, an amazing vision. Actually, the vision isn't too far from what we enacted four years later. Uh, it, it was really, a, it, to me, it was a far-reaching vision. It had many of the components that we've talked about today. But you know, the institution was not ready for that. And I didn't get the job. Um, I didn't hear about it. There was this huge gap in time around, you know, who was going to get it and me not hearing anything. And, you know, I, I learned not only about what the gaps were, I also learned how to communicate with someone if you're not going to give them a job as a leader, right? So your own experiences of failure help to inform your work as a leader and how you lead as well. But I didn't get the job. And I understood why it was painful for me at the time. I understood why. But that's when I took that information and I said, okay, I need to do certain activities. I need to get that experience. That's when I moved into the leadership in quality. I needed to have a leadership role. I needed to manage a budget. I needed to lead teams in a very different way. I needed to discuss and show how I could translate my research into actual practice. I needed to actually have a demonstration ground. And I then strategically moved to that area, always keeping a focus in women's health and building another area of women's health. But that's how I use those, those experiences of failure. And, and I could come up with many more because there have been many more, but I think those two in particular were, were important. Great, thank you. Yes, Neil. Hi, Dr. Johnson. Thank you so much for uh, sharing with all your insight with us today. Thanks, uh, my name is Neil Murthy. I'm an MPH student in the field of global health, and I'm also a medical student in Texas, uh, taking a year off and doing my MPH work now. Um, I was just going to ask, um, at, in the early part of your career, as you were developing your career, uh, was there any uh, instances where you came in contact with hierarchy who were completely dismissive of the work that you were doing and where you weren't able to find that common ground? And my follow-up to that would be, how did you deal with those experiences in order to uh, advance your, your, your 
advocacy and stuff. Yeah. So. Um, I think it's, Neil, that's a great question. And the answer, I'm just going to be brief, and I think we can, we can have more conversation, but the answer to that is yes, there are people who, who actually don't believe that there are sex differences in health and disease who don't believe that the context of women's lives, both biologically and from a social and environmental standpoint, really require a special focus and are actually where it's a field of, of study, a discipline. So there are those people. Um, but most importantly, they are outnumbered by the people who actually think otherwise. So I think in this world, as you move forward, and especially in fields that are relatively new, um, you find your allies, you work to potentially influence those who are, who are not interested, but you really have to move the work forward and find the paths that are going to give you and your team and the people that you work with the greatest boost forward. And I think in particular, as I said, in newer fields, this is critically important because as you look back 10 years or 20 years down the line, just like I was told, this might ruin your career, it's not the path. Moving forward, it might look very differently. There's also an aspect that is not um, immediately obvious in, in Paula's answer, which is that she immediately took the positive and find the allies. But there is a, a question of when do you confront the people that really disagree with you and you can't find common ground on. And uh, I, I, mean, I have a hunch how, how you would answer, but what do you say about confrontation? Uh, confrontation occurs, and it's part of leadership. Um, one must learn how to deal with confrontation with, with people or organizations that are confrontational, differences of opinion. Um, and that is where uh, I think negotiation skills are critically important. Um, once again, though, how do you get the best data to make your case, have the best grounding and rooting in, uh, in your particular area of expertise? Um, and you may not come out the other end agreeing, but what you will do is come out being respected. And I think in many ways, that's sometimes the best way to end a confrontation because you know you're not going to come to yes, but there's a respect. Um, at the end of the day. And I think we could come up with many examples uh, around um, where there's been tremendous disagreement, where you've worked to come to consensus, but sometimes consensus is not possible. Mm -hmm. But that respect is important. Mm -hmm. Because it gets back to you're going to find these people again in your lives. They keep coming back. Uh, and, you know, the, the respect is really what matters. Um, so th this, um, you know, we're at just after an election. Um, Health care reform is important. Um, as we've discussed, there were a number of forces that brought President Obama into his second term. Um, and uh, what do you think? Um, what do you think needs to be done now in terms of women's health, status of women, more generally, uh, and if you want to go into healthcare, that's also um, obviously relevant. Oh, wow, Jennifer. <laughs> we have a few more minutes, but okay. only if only if our president were here. Yes. Um, you know, it's a great question, and you know, I think the past four years have been pretty remarkable. If we think about what has been achieved with healthcare reform, 
and inherent in that are the opportunities for women. Um, I was, had the honor of being on the Institute of Medicine Committee that was really moved forward by an act of Congress to come up with the recommendations for, for preventative care in women. And I think it was a phenomenal experience, but it was only an administration that would have the vision that our current one does that would accept those recommendations and make them into the law. So we have, I think we've, we've come a long way in four years. But this next four years is going to be critical because part of our work has been really taking Massachusetts healthcare reform, looking at the, studying the experience of women and taking that to exchanges as they get developed around our country, which is making sure that as healthcare reform is implemented, that the needs of women, the healthcare needs of women, the health of women, both from a healthcare delivery and public health perspective, are absolutely addressed, but addressed based on the data. So opportunity number one is let's deliver on the promise of healthcare reform for women. Can I just say, I think you're talking about the health exchanges and what's on offer in any state, right? right. It has to have right. these elements in it. They will have various elements and how those exchanges, so these are kind of where you build the insurance, but also think about the translation of, of, of health care and, and uh, the connection to public health, what this looks like in every single state. So this is happening right now and the opportunity is now. So that's one major area. And the second, I think if we think about the advancement of women and the advancement of women's health, both domestically and globally, there's a real opportunity in the, these next four years to connect those two, to bring the right coalition of leadership together to say that this, these, this agenda is critically important, both globally and domestically. It's important because it's a major health issue that advances the health of our world. It's important because it advances the economies of our world. And quite frankly, it's a human rights issue. So this is, I think, the opportunity. And I'm not going to pretend to know all the answers, but we do know it is the moment. And are you planning to be at the table? I sure hope so. Okay. <laughs> I think we might have time for one more question, one more question. Okay, so, so then, okay, you, great, all right. <clears throat> if you could make it brief, and Dr. Johnson will make it brief, and then we'll come to a close. Thank you. Um, my name is Charlotte Gamble. I'm a uh, MPH candidate here and also a medical student at the University of Michigan Medical School. Thank you so much for joining us today. I had a question in terms of coalition building and finding political will in terms of women's health. How have you done that in your own career um, to bring groups of people to the same table to advance one strategy that you see as important? That's a great question. I'm going to give you two quick examples. One is some very early work we did around the affordability of healthy eating in our state. Um, it's a major women's health issue because women are usually making the decisions. Uh, and we did um, a, a study looking at affordability um, and looking at some of the affordability standards. We quickly recognized that based on the data, there was real opportunity to move this agenda forward. So it was both an agenda that we needed to address in the, in the healthcare delivery setting, but it was a major public health agenda. And through the study, through getting the data, we were actually able, in a very 
um, collaborative way because we didn't own any piece of this. We were able to bring so many different partners to the table that it ended up leading to some major work being done in the city and then in the state and most recently with the Food Policy Council being developed in our state. And I think it's formed the basis of a lot of other work that's happened across the country. I'm not going to take credit for all of it, but I think it was really bringing the, the science, bringing the knowledge, bringing the proof to the table, and then kind of bringing other partners, and not necessarily being the voice of um, the authority, but, but having data that was able to, to bring people together. And then secondly, some of the work we're doing in, in healthcare reform has been very important and a real uh, need to build coalitions. Once again, we've served as the, the, the group that's brought the data, brought the studies to the table, looking at women's health, analyzing experience, coming up with, with um, a way of addressing women's health that I think is very valuable to other organizations. So we've pulled together organizations, a, a small coalition uh, with the Kaiser Family Foundation and, and with the Jacobs Institute of Women's Health and a number of other organizations to really think about how we bring good information um, to the table that helps inform policy. And that's another way where, once again, we're not necessarily the leader, but we've brought a very important piece of work to the table that's compelling. And we've used that to build those coalitions moving forward. So great question. So this is an argument for getting really well trained <laughs> and for learning a lot and always for various patterns and modes of gathering the relevant information, um, or even the information you don't know if it's going to be relevant, but go out and find it. This is, this is part of the fabulous quest of being in an academic setting, where it's at the School of Public Health or any one of the various faculties uh, at Harvard and elsewhere. It's a, it's a mission for um, educated people, and you are a group of educated people. It's a mission also if you're in anything relating to advancing the cause of disadvantaged minorities or marginalized populations. And in some settings, women, that large population, are in those categories of discriminated against, stigmatized, and marginalized, even if they may be in equal number. And the, I think what's really uh, quite visionary and extraordinary about uh, Paula Johnson is that she never gives up. She is always courteous. She is always underneath, tough on the issues. And usually, as in every setting I've seen her, and this is true of friends who know her, um, who've seen her in other settings, she's impeccable about the data. So I'm delighted that you could be here and that um, you and those watching had a chance to meet her. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jennifer. This has been a production of Decision Making Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. We encourage you to share Decision Making Voices from the Field.